James 2, beginning at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, James has been teaching us that if we are true Christians, we need to be not just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. James makes it clear that it's not enough to attend church and profess the truths of the Christian faith. True devotion to God must also show itself in concrete acts of love and righteousness. At the end of James 1, James gave three tests by which we can measure our spirituality. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and undefiled includes controlling your tongue, looking after widows and orphans in their distress, and remaining unstained or unpolluted from the world. James followed this up with an example In the first verses of chapter 2, he warns us not to show partiality. James gave the example of how two men entered a gathering of believers, one wearing fine clothing while the other was dressed in rags. The rich man was given a place of honor while the poor was treated as a servant and made to feel unwelcome. James makes it clear that favoritism and faith are incompatible. We sin when we show favoritism to some and discriminate against others. We break God's holy law if we treat people differently because of their wealth, appearance, social standing, or race. I think we can all accept that it's wrong to treat people differently based on their riches, their social standing, or race. But What may be more difficult to understand is why James uses this example to address our religiosity. In the back of our minds, we wonder, what's the big deal? Showing favoritism seems to be such a minor sin. We could understand if James addressed us on murdering our neighbor or committing adultery or stealing. Those are grievous sins that come with serious consequences. We don't understand why James makes makes showing favoritism into such a big deal. 
We need to remember James is teaching us about what pure and undefiled religion before God looks like. Do you know what would happen if James said that pure and undefiled religion before God means don't murder, don't steal, and don't commit adultery? We'd go, check, check, check. I haven't done any of those things, so I must be right before God. It's easy for us to dismiss God's standard for our lives if we just see the commandments as an outward checklist. James wants to teach us what genuine faith looks like. A living faith in Jesus Christ involves more than outward conformity to God's commands. The royal law taught in Scripture involves more than a list of do's and don'ts. James takes us back to Jesus' teaching about the law of God. He teaches us that God's law can be summarized in one line. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James says that if we're fulfilling that law, we're doing well. I summarize the word of God for you under the following theme. In his royal law, God commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. James teaches us how we are not to judge unjustly and how we are to show forth mercy. If we simplify verse 8 of our text, it says, If you really fulfill the law, you are doing well. So what does it mean to really fulfill the law? To fulfill the law is to keep it, to obey it. To really keep the law means that we do it with our whole heart, that all our effort is involved. James knows that his readers were serious about keeping the law. The intent of their hearts was to walk according to God's commands. Yet James also knows that they did not keep it consistently. And he wants to make this clear. James describes the law in a particular way in our text. He calls it the royal law according to Scripture. Part of the reason for this is that the law does not have a human origin. The law we're talking about is not just some human law drafted by people. It comes from the Lord God of Israel, the great King. While he was on earth, Jesus gave us a summary of God's law. And the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is Lord of lords and King of kings. So whatever comes from the king himself is clearly a royal law. Notice that James quotes one verse from the Old Testament scriptures to summarize what God's law is all about. It's taken from Leviticus 19, a passage which deals with various prescriptions about how to treat your neighbor, and especially about how to show Mercy to the poor and the needy. The Lord summarized all these commands in one line. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James also learned this from the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Pharisees asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, Jesus also quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Some might ask why James focuses on the second part of the great commandment to love. Why doesn't he deal with the first part where we're called to love the Lord with all our hearts? It's because James is dealing with relationships within the communion of saints. How we live together in our relationships as brothers and sisters in the church will show whether we truly love God with all our hearts. It's easy to say we love God. It's much harder to show that love in our dealings with one another. In our text, James begins with two conditional statements. They stand in opposition to one another. You're either in the first camp or you're in the second. James says that if you fulfill the royal law by loving your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, that's favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You see, beloved, if you truly love your neighbors yourself, you will not show favoritism. You'll treat all members of the church in a fair and an honorable way. So what does it mean to show favoritism? Does this mean that we can't have friends in the church and spend more time with them than with anyone else? Isn't it a form of favoritism to prefer spending time with some members over others? To answer this question, I think it's important to distinguish between loving someone and liking someone. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we particularly like all our brothers and sisters in the church. In a large congregation, you cannot have a close relationship with every other member of the body. You'll be closer to some than to others, and that's okay. Yet the point is, we're to love everyone as a brother and sister. And when it comes to how we treat people, we're not to show favoritism even to a close friend. Why does James make such a big deal about showing favoritism? Why does he care about whether we treat someone rich or powerful or attractive or popular differently than someone who doesn't have the same social standing? The problem with showing favoritism is that in doing so, we make judgments in our hearts. We're judging that one person is worthy of our honor or attention, while another is not. Now, there may be situations where it's necessary to show honor or give attention to someone. If the Prime Minister of Canada were to attend one of our services, we would be wrong not to show him the honor that his office deserves. In Romans 13, Paul commands us to be subject to the governing authorities. He commands pay to all what is owed to them, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And likewise, it's proper for our ushers 
to extend an especially warm welcome to all guests who join us in worship. That is showing Christian hospitality. It's not showing favoritism. The problem with favoritism is that we treat people differently based on their outward appearance. In our hearts, we make judgments that one person's more worthy of our time and attention than another. And how fair is that? Why should we favor a rich man over a poor man? Our simple hearts would say, because maybe the rich man could be of some benefit to us. Why are we more drawn to successful and attractive people than to those who are struggling and needy? Our simple hearts would say, because associating with attractive people will make me look good, while getting to know the struggling and needy might cost me something. Why do the popular people have crowds around them while nobody wants to associate with the losers? Our simple hearts would say, because we want to be with the in crowd instead of being labeled a nobody. Can you see, beloved, how favoritism involves making judgments about people? And can you see how our judgments are often biased and unfair? The sin of judging others is one we all so easily fall into. We all have a tendency to make negative judgments about one another. Sometimes it happens just in our thoughts and maybe apparent only in our attitudes. But often it also comes out in our words and our deeds. We show favoritism to some and discriminate against others. We fail in the law's teaching that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Some of you might wonder, is it wrong to make judgments? Don't we need to be discerning in life? Isn't it true that God calls us to be discerning, to distinguish right from wrong? God has given us his word and spirit to help us to know how to live God-pleasing lives. In specific situations, we may be called upon to make judgments about the sinfulness of someone's actions. And yet, while we're called to distinguish the truth from the lie, what's right from what's sinful, God teaches us not to condemn others. When James opposes showing favoritism, he draws on the teachings of the Lord Jesus. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Judge not that you be not judged. He warned that God will judge us according to the standards by which we judged others. Jesus makes it clear that so often we're very critical of our neighbor while we're blind to our own sins. He said, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Our Lord goes so far as to call us hypocrites if we're judgmental about others without discerning our own sins. Yet Jesus' main point is that it simply is not our job to condemn others. Even Jesus 
the sinless man who knew the hearts of all people, did not take on the role of judge while he was on earth. In John 3.17, Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In John 12.47, he said, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. If while on earth Jesus did not judge people, what right do we have to do so? As Christ followers, it's not our job to sit in judgment on the lives of others. But we do. It's part of our sinful human nature. We cannot help but making negative judgments about others every day. We do it with those around us in society. He looks like a slob. That person drives like an old lady. We do it with brothers and sisters in the church. He's greedy. She's a gossip. I wonder how they could afford that new car. We do it in our families with the put-down comments we make, with a lack of consideration we often show. And what's worst of all is that we don't think it's really a big deal. Yet in our text, James teaches us that making negative judgments and showing favoritism are a big deal. He says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James goes on to show that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We sometimes think that we can pick and choose what commandments to obey. But James teaches us that if you keep one law but break another, you're guilty of the whole thing. You might ask, but isn't there a difference between different kinds of sins? Is making judgments about your neighbor as serious a sin as committing murder or adultery? To answer that, I'd say yes and no. Committing murder or adultery would likely have much more serious consequences than showing favoritism would. But committing any sin makes you a lawbreaker. We would like to try justify our sins by saying they're not as serious as the sins of another. But every sin is an offense against God. Beloved, there's no such thing as a little sin. With every sin, we grieve the Lord. With every sin, we incur his wrath. Do you remember how our text began with two if statements? If you really fulfill the royal law by loving your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you're committing sin or convicted by the law as a transgressor. James wants to make it clear that we're either in the one camp or in the other. Obedience to God's law is an all-or-nothing proposition. 
We're either obedient to it all or we're convicted as lawbreakers. There's no middle ground. Does that make you a bit nervous, beloved? James has been teaching us what genuine faith looks like. It requires us to be more than just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. James gave those tests of what pure and undefiled religion before God should look like. One of the tests he gave was that we visit widows and orphans in their distress. Widows and orphans were the poor, the disadvantaged, the needy ones in James' day. James has shown us that showing favoritism to the rich while discriminating against the poor is wrong. It goes against God's requirement that we love our neighbor as ourselves. With this example, James wants to show us we all fail to live up to God's standards. He wants to convict us of the fact that we're all guilty of being lawbreakers. We'll see why James wants to humble us in our second point. And it he teaches us how we are to show forth mercy. By using the sin of judging others as an example, James has shown us that none of us live up to God's high standard of loving our neighbor as ourselves. Unless we're self-deluded, we cannot claim to be fulfilling the royal law or to, doing, or to being well in the sight of God. Anyone who breaks even one of God's commandments is guilty of breaking them all. If we had to stand before God's judgment seat on the basis of our own merits, we would all be convicted as transgressors. God would rightly judge us as being lawbreakers, as being worthy of condemnation. Do you know why James is so intent on convicting us of our sins? Do you understand why he drives home the point that showing favoritism to some while discriminating against others is wrong? Do you see why James warns us so strongly not to make judgments about one another? It's because being judgmental shows forth a lack of mercy. If the Lord were to treat us as we so often treat those around us, we'd all be condemned. James wants us to see how badly we need God's mercy. So what is mercy? Mercy means having compassion on those in need. Mercy is showing undeserved kindness. Mercy, an attribute, a characteristic of the Lord our God. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In Psalm 103, David describes God's mercy to us. He shows how God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. God has the right to condemn us because of our sins. But instead, he shows forth his undeserved mercy. God's mercy towards us has been manifested in Jesus Christ. 
God sent his dearly loved son into the world, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus came to pay the price for our sins, to deliver us from the condemnation that we deserve. Both Paul and Peter describe salvation as receiving mercy. In Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul explains, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy. On the basis of this, James tells us, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What James is teaching is the same as what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Jesus taught us not to judge others. For the same way you judge others, you will be judged. James is telling us that if we judge without showing mercy, God will judge us in the same way. The point is that if we are not merciful to others, God will not be merciful to us. That sounds pretty severe. But what James is teaching here is consistent with the rest of Scripture. In the Beatitudes, Jesus stated, Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. After teaching the Lord's Prayer to his disciples, Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In Matthew 18, Jesus told the parable of the unforgiving servant. While he was forgiven a massive debt that he would never be able to repay, he was unwilling to forgive a much smaller debt that a fellow servant owed him. Jesus condemned him as a wicked servant for not having mercy on his fellow servant. He concluded the parable by stating, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. See, beloved, the day of judgment is coming. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may receive what's due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That will be a day of reckoning for each one of us. Romans 2 verse 16 says that God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Nothing will be overlooked or hidden away. We will be astonished at all the evil that we have done. Will think, did I say that? Did I do that? How could I? What James teaches us is that God will deal with us in the same way that we've dealt with others. With God, there is no favoritism. The Lord will not look at our riches, popularity, social standing, or gifts, or anything else that we're favored with here. God will look at our words and our actions 
at what we said and what we did. James says that we will be judged by the law. The same standard will be applied to all people. For God shows no partiality. Now, beloved, if we had to appear before the judgment of the seat of God on our own, we'd be in deep trouble. If God were to judge us as we judged others, we'd all be condemned. None of us is, is completely fair in how we deal with others around us. We're all guilty of making judgments about our brothers and sisters in the faith. None of us has truly loved our neighbor as ourselves. We're all guilty of being selfish and self-serving in our dealings with those around us. We're all destroyed by this law. All of us are driven to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's when we get to that point that the last words of our text apply to us. James writes, Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy triumphs in Jesus Christ. By his cross, we who deserve judgment will receive mercy. We will receive God's undeserved kindness. But we need to understand that this kindness comes to us at a great cost. Jesus had to come into this sinful world to suffer and to die. He bore God's wrath against all our sins on the cross. He did that in order that God could show us mercy. So that instead of condemning us on the final day, he could show us his grace and love. And what does God want from us in response to his great mercy? He wants us to show the same mercy to those around us. And how are we to do that? By loving our neighbor as ourselves. What does that look like? Well, our text teaches us it's not our job to go around making judgments about our brothers and sisters. Instead, we need to show them undeserved compassion and kindness. We do that by bearing with each other's weaknesses and shortcomings. We do that by forgiving each other. We do it by loving each other as Christ first loved us. Our text began with an impossible command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It taught us that if you do love, that if you love, you do well. But if you're partial in making judgments, you're a transgressor. It showed us that in ourselves, we're all guilty of breaking the law and liable to judgment for this. And yet our text ends with unfathomable grace. It teaches us that mercy triumphs over judgment. God's undeserved kindness in Christ has set us free from the penalty of the law. 
because God has shown us such great mercy, we are commanded to do the same, to be kind and gentle in our dealings with one another, to love our neighbor as God first loved us. May God help us in that by the power of his Spirit, so that we may live authentic lives as his redeemed and renewed people. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from Psalm 103, verses 3, 4, and 5. We sing of God's great mercy towards us.